Welcome to a conversation about race and reconciliation. My name is Todd Bolander, and today with me we have panelists from Gulf Coast Community Church. Our church has recently been in the process of engaging the matter of uh, racial issues in the United States and how uh, Christians and the church um, can and should respond to those questions. And recently, there was a sermon series here back in current recording is April 1st of 2020. And during the month of January, the church had a sermon series, a four-part sermon series about justice, racial issues, uh, questions of how does the church, how do Christians engage in this topic in a fruitful and meaningful way. Then the church went forward about a month later with a Wednesday night family conversation where the same panel group for our podcast here today um, just held an, an open meeting uh, with the church members to talk, begin a, uh, or continue the conversation, to give um, an opportunity to hear from each other about these things, and, and in particular to hear from one of our members, Tony Moore, about his experience in this. And so this podcast recording is an attempt to further that conversation. There were lots of questions during that Wednesday evening panel that people submitted, members of the church submitted that we weren't able to get to. There were some submitted online in advance. And so this is an opportunity to continue to have that dialogue. With me today are... Jerry Caesar, one of the pastors. Jerry, you can go, this is where you're talking to the microphone. Yes, absolutely. Okay, uh, glad to be here. And then uh, Dave Wilson, who also is one of the pastors here at the church. Good morning. Glad to be here. And Tony Moore, who spoke that Wednesday night, and this has been a passionate issue for him over, well, I'll let him tell you about it. Good morning. It's good to be here. I just want to go around real quick, and maybe some of our listeners, even members, don't know much about us outside of seeing us on Sunday. I would hope that isn't the case, but in case we have some folks who are newer to the church and don't know much about what we do when we're not talking podcast or holding a Wednesday night meeting or the Sunday morning meeting, uh, I'm going to go around the table and and let's hear from each one. So Dave, what is it that you do when you're not sitting behind a microphone grinning? Oh, well, um, I, I am a member here at the church and uh, on the elder board, serve as a, a pastor. And just in general life, I work uh, in advertising and marketing and uh, live here with my family in St. Petersburg. So just a, a regular guy and uh, <laughs> You know, uh, really excited to kind of engage some of these issues because I think uh, God is definitely, you know, bringing these uh, these things to the fore, and, and really excited for the opportunity to to dig in and dialogue and and see, you know, what what are we to do? How how are we to think about this as a church? So not that it makes you a superhero, but it might make you a little heroic. What's your relationship to Gulf Coast? You you had a you have a unique or a distinct history. Oh well, um, I, I think you're talking about just in terms of planning the church. Yes, yeah. So we, uh, my wife and I, Susan, have been 
a part of the church since the very beginning. We moved here with our, uh, at that time, four- and two-year-old from Orlando to help start the church, to plant the church. And uh, I guess it's going on probably 27, it was probably 28 years ago that we moved here. We actually uh, came over, you know, with the express intention of, you know, helping, uh, meeting with other believers and starting the church in St. Petersburg. So all that to say, we've we've been uh, blessed to be a part of the church from the very beginning when it was just, you know, a few dozen people uh, meeting in a rented space to today. And just to see all that God has done over those years is, is great. Okay, thank you. Next, Tony Moore. Tony Moore. Next is Tony Moore. Yes, okay, I thought you were going to ask me a question. So. <laughs> I might ask you a question. So, Tony, uh, when when you're not uh, here with us on Sundays and Wednesday evenings and Sunday nights and all the other times that you're here with us as an active member of the church, uh, what is it you do? So, um, again, good morning. Um, primarily, uh, from a, my time is probably divided between two things. I'm a husband and father. And um, also my mother is retired and lives with us. So I'm a part of that, what they call the sandwich generation. So, okay. Because um, I've got multiple generations around me. Right. And, um, and then the other part of my time from a vocational standpoint is I'm a uh, professional keynote speaker. So I travel the country speaking at conferences about leadership and culture development and how you get the best out of your employees. Right. And you've written a book. I, yes, I have. have a written a book titled um, Culture in 4D, which is a... Um, a pretty much a how-to manual on how to impact the organization's culture and how to lead your team through an or, a culture change. Awesome. Thank you. And then Jerry Caesar? Well, I, uh, I kind of do this, except it's, it's varied <laughs> forms. I'm a uh, uh, pastor here at Gulf Coast full-time, um, so I'm either preparing a sermon, meeting with people, uh, holding staff meetings, which is always... Uh, Meetings never feel particularly uh, productive, but they are uh, what they are, and um, uh, in, any number of other things, prayer, planning. Uh, my time has changed radically with the pandemic that we're currently in. Right. Um, in many ways, I feel more productive because it's, it's eliminated um, the interruptions because I'm focused in, in, in that I, I work from home primarily, uh, and, and so there are a number of things I've been doing, uh, getting up and doing a... Uh, a, a brief video cast uh, type of thing, which it, 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 we're putting out things we would never have thought to do before. Ah. Um, one, the quality. I mean, uh, you know, I, I would never have done something like this without planning and production and making sure that the quality were top shelf. Right now, the need is so great. You, you don't wait for quality. You just get care right. to folks and, and help. Um, increasing the um, number of posts on the um, uh, blog so that there's material speaking to this situation, mm-hmm. encouraging folks. Um, and, and so a number of things like that um, to, to provide different kinds of care for folks. So then tell me, I gave an overview of the podcast of what we're trying to do here. In, in your words, because they probably will better capture it, what, what is it you would like us to be doing as far as recording these sessions? Well, it's, we had the, the Wednesday night meeting where uh, the four of us were there. You moderated, and, and Tony shared from his heart and life. And there were so many questions that our folks had. Uh, and so I wanted, I, I want our 
folks to get the questions answered. The people that are a part of our church, I want their questions to be able to be answered. And I know the, the answers will generate more questions. So we want to create a form to hear those questions as well uh, and then continue dialoguing through things. However, uh, I also want, wanted somebody that was one of us who to share his experience, his life experience. And as an African-American being raised in this country, to give people in our church a sense of what that was. It's not, as he would be the first to tell you, uh, it's not the only African-American experience in, in our country or in, in the church. Um, but it is a, a, it's not only a, a, an authentic one, it's his, it's one that's from among us, but it uh, has a lot of common denominators with a number of other folks that would uh, share much of his experience. And... Uh, I wanted him to be able to speak before all the questions were answered. Um, it, it, we've kind of had a an unspoken policy that that those in positions of power um, they set the rules for how the conversation is going to go, and 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 I wanted to reverse that and say that the person who's had the experience gets to speak first. It's it's kind of like the, the you bring somebody. Uh, into your office a couple and, and, and there's, you know, the issue is abuse. You, you wouldn't want to have the abuser start com- the conversation if it's emotional abuse, let's say. You would, and then begin to control the conversation. You'd want to have the abused person speak, in fact, probably absent of the abuser without even them being in the room so that they can share freely. And I, I think uh, we're in a, the dynamic of, of, race and reconciliation, I, I think we have to recognize that uh, the African-American, and I'm speaking through history, the, the experience of the African-American in history from the time they were, were captured and kidnapped from Africa, brought over on slave ships, all the way to the present day, uh, has in, in, in many ways been uh, an experience of abuse. And that compiles generationally and affects and impacts uh, the psyche in, in, in so many ways and the scriptures call us to mourn with those who mourn, to grieve with those who grieve. And um, for good reason, um, many of our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ grieve. And uh, I want to be able to create a context where we can learn and hear about that so we can learn how to grieve and we can learn how to mourn uh, appropriately uh, with them. Let me back us up to January and mm-hmm. the sermon series. It was a four-part series. Tell me a little bit about what your goals were for it. What were, what were you aiming for with that series? And then uh, what do you think it accomplished? With that series, the goal was first and foremost to equip our folks, uh, equip and even motivate our folks to engage a conversation with our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, God has made the body of Christ one. He has joined us together. There is no uh, barrier because of the cross of Christ that should exist between uh, us and our African-American brothers and sisters here in Christ. Yet the church, because of historic sin, because of historic occurrences, the church still remains divided. And, and so the vast majority of African-Americans worship, uh, as it were, uh, on the south end of town, on the other side of Central, maybe a little bit as we get toward Central. And the vast majority of white Christians in this community uh, worship on the north side. And, of course, you could 
mark out exceptions and so forth. But the point is, is that there's still a segregation that exists, and the scriptures call for that not to be the case. I think Paul's uh, admonition to make every effort to seek the unity of the Spirit is what's driving this, and in order for that unity of the Spirit to occur, is we, we have to engage in conversation. Now, Paul's admonition, make every effort to pursue the unity of the Spirit, assumes that just because we are one doesn't mean we're living that way. Just because we are united doesn't mean we're living as if we're united, else what would there be to pursue? And so it assumes that there's work to be done, and there certainly is, and so our desire is to uh, create context for conversation and then to equip our folks uh, in such a way that they don't react in political ways, to, to, to get us used to dialoguing about some of the key words that are used um, and, and, and to be less uh, combative or reactive to it um, as, as we went forward. So I, I don't know if that makes sense. It would be easy for someone to assume goals or aims when something like that is said, and it, and it takes it bears repeating that here was what I was trying to do with this. Here is what the leaders of the church were trying to do with this. Right. So I appreciate that. Dave, from your perspective, what were some of the aims? Because you spoke during the series, you gave a sermon in that series. What was one of your goals or aims, and, and what do you think it accomplished? Hmm. Well, one thing... Um, it's always helpful to think of what's happening kind of in the life of the church and, and even what's happening in the life of the nation. I mean, those are all kind of contexts that we're living in. And, um, you know, certainly in recent years in the United States, um, there's been a lot of um, kind of high-profile situations where uh, a minority person, typically an African-American person, uh, maybe is uh, arrested or they end up uh, being injured or shot. And, and, you know, you could mention probably a number of names and people would recognize that there was some, um, you know, serious attention and, and um, discussion around uh, people of color being uh, uh, suffering, really going through a difficult situation, dying very often because of, you know, very often an, an interaction with somebody in law enforcement, you know, a police officer. So, I mean, there's been kind of a, um, an increased uh, dialogue, I think, in our country and in our community about those things. I think uh, in a lot of ways, it's not because those things have not been happening, but it's, I think we live in an age where Everybody's got a video camera, in a sense, in their pocket with, with uh, a phone. Uh, and it's just, uh, I think, some of the issues and some of the, the suffering and some of the injustices uh, that have been around our country you know, for generations, for, for years and years, for hundreds of years, have just been given sort of new uh, publicity. So I, I don't think it's one of those things where we're, we're wanting to be trendy or we're wanting to just to be relevant. You know, we're wanting to just address something that's popular or, or you know, something that's getting a lot of play in social media. Um, in St. Petersburg, uh, I think as Jerry had mentioned, we live in a city that is very divided uh, racially, uh, economically in some ways. And... Um, I think uh, 
it's just important for us as the people of God to to look and say what what do we do what are we to think about these situations how are we to act does does the bible inform how we address these situations and i think um as a leadership team we've been thinking about these things we've been praying about them we've actually been cultivating relationships with uh, African-American pastors and, and other believers in the city. And um, I think we came to a place as a leadership team uh, of, of a conviction to say, you know, we're talking about some issues that are central to our faith as believers. We're talking about reconciliation. We're talking about justice. And justice can be one of those sort of red flag words that people could be thinking, oh, social justice and uh, you know, justice that isn't connected to gospel proclamation. But I think what we wanted to do as a leadership team is say, look, let's, let's dive into what the scriptures say. Let's, let's be informed by the word of God on how to think about these things. And I think ultimately we, we came to a point as a leadership team where we said, we think God is in this. We think God would have us to, to be aware, to be informed, and to be active in, in whatever ways we can to see reconciliation, to see racial uh, divides among believers bridged. And um, I think when we came to a point of saying, we think this is something uh, important to us as a church, all churches, you know, there's certain things that we all should believe are important, uh, but, but other churches, sometimes they're very active in uh, ministering to the poor or uh, ministries relating to addiction or different things. But, but as a church, we said, you know, we think this is a, a priority, kind of a missional priority. So for us to, to lead the church, I think the leadership team said, we now need to, to inform, we need to encourage, we need to um, kind of educate the church. Uh, what does the Word of God say? We're, we're entering into um, an area of increased engagement as a church, so we need to start by being informed biblically. So that, I think, led to the series. You, you talked about we started this all with a four-part series, and that, that's something fairly unusual for us to talk about uh, a topic uh, or to focus on a topic in a series where there's multiple sermons against a certain topic. Uh, we tend to w- work through books of the Bible uh, verse by verse expositionally, but we really felt that um, for us to, to bring all of the members of the church together around this issue, we needed to start uh, with the Word of God, to start by teaching, to start by understanding what do the scriptures say about how we should think and what we should do and how we should live. So that, that really kicked off the series and kind of launched us into uh, the dialogue that's continuing today with this podcast. Tony, when you heard the series as a member of the church, black member of the church, what, what stood out to you? What sort of impact did it have on you as you were sitting in, in the pew, so to speak, and hearing what was being taught on Sunday morning? What, what did that do to you? 
you know, it's interesting. It's it's when you think when I think about um, or maybe I should say it differently. What's interesting is that I have to think back to what it did then versus where I am today. Right. Because there's there's been a process that has occurred over the through the series, through that Wednesday night. Now here at this podcast, right. um, there's been some evolution. So therefore, I'm looking back in time. Um, right. But um, the things that I think um, are that I'm certain of is um, kind of twofold. I would say on, on the one hand, there was a sense that I was in a place where it was um, safe, um, that I was in a place where there were um, white Americans who were willing to use words like race, African-American reconciliation without any concern or um, recognizing that that was going to, that those are firebrand words for American citizens. Okay. But they're willing to say it anyway because right. they felt like it needed to be said. Mm-hmm. And so by doing so, it made me feel like I was being seen, truly seen, um, because they were addressing things that were, uh, were, were absolutely of concern for me, for my family and for generations of my family. So, um, so we, this this conversation has happened in every generation. This isn't a new conversation. It's happened in, in every generation. And to pick up on something that Jerry said, oftentimes the conversation is controlled by others, not by us. And so and by us, I mean black Americans. Right. So um, so there's not a we're not in control of that of the narrative. And so um, so to hear that I was able, the first thing was that. And so it it um, gave me a chance. I used the phrase that it gave me a chance to exhale and um, something that I didn't realize I needed to do. Um, I didn't wasn't like I was walking around and I knew that this is what was going on f- with me over the course of my experience in this country. But it um, I got a chance to, to exhale and to and it felt really good to do so. <laughs> it felt really good to do so. Um, the second thing, though, I think it did. The second part of it, though, I think is that it it um, it sent me to examine my own. How have how have my views been shaped by our country? And to what extent are those views not aligned with the scripture? Um, so when I think of forgiveness, when I think of grace shown toward people, when I think of those things, um, I I also am prone to think of them through the lens of American culture. And so it forced me to say, if they're going to be they, the white members of our church, are going to be examining themselves in light of what's being taught, what does Tony's examination look like? Hmm. What does it mean for me? What, right. what am I need to be doing? Because I also um, want to be more like Christ. And so... So I think those would be the two biggies, but um, uh, it was an incredible experience and has continued to be. Was there anything said during that sermon series, Tony, that you're sitting there and you're you're hearing um, Dave or Jerry or um, the pastor who visited and spoke, and you're you're hearing it and you're thinking to yourself, "Hmm, okay, yeah, I." I get the point what they're saying, and I appreciate that, but they probably could have said that a little differently. It might have been more helpful, or or now I'm at the back end of that series, and I'm thinking, man, they didn't talk about this. You know, this goes right along with the other things. I don't understand why they didn't also mention this. Were there any of those where either as you're listening in the moment, you're like, okay, that that's not the way I would have said that, or, or hey, um... We kind of missed one of the big chunks here, maybe. Not at all. Um, not at all. I'm, I'm sure that if I 
sat down and listened to the messages and had and was critiquing, I probably could get there. But there's been such silence in in the white church on the issue. The fact that there was a voice was right. sufficient, mm-hmm. <laughs> if that makes sense. I mean, it was a mm-hmm. voice that I was hearing for the first time that I'm like, wow. Um, so I so no, no, nothing that I would have said or done differently. I could go back and listen and probably could come up with something. But. I just felt like there was. Well, I'm not attempt. asking you. To. No, no, you're not. No, no, I understand that. No, I understand that. Um, um, but I, I think that it was, it was just, it was just a, um, I don't know. It's, 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 it was just a Christ-like approach to an issue that plagues our church, not Gulf Coast, the church, because it can't be plagued. Because it, the reason it is is because we're a part of a cult, a country where it plagues us. So it makes sense even as Jerry said earlier, because of from historical um, historical events, the way we worship so separately and that sort of thing. So there's just been such a, there's been so much silence and, uh, and, um, and, a, and in our country, a tendency to, to blame and to say, well, you're in that situation because you didn't do, mm. or if your father had done, or if your grandfather had done, mm-hmm. then you wouldn't be in this situation. And I don't think that that's the, and whereas that may be perfectly okay for an American citizen or any citizen of any country, I don't think that's the okay a- approach for a Christian. I don't oh. think that when I see a homeless person, I'm supposed to go, well, if you had just gone, finished, gotten your high school diploma, you wouldn't be homeless. Mm-hmm. I think what I'm supposed to do is reach out to them. I don't think that Jesus just went to the, the lady at the woman at the well and said, well, if you hadn't done such and such and such and such, someone would draw your water for you. I mean, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I think he just did. Oh, right. and, and then by doing it, allowed uh-huh. him to connect to them uh-huh. to show them something different than they had ever seen or experienced. And I think that's what mm-hmm. we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that you said you, you referred to earlier is you, you, as you process the series, you're thinking to yourself, okay, if, if this is how other members of the congregation, particularly white members, should be thinking, what, what, what is my response? And of course, um, each of us have to engage our own response. And I was struck uh, the week that Daryl Williamson, the other pastor, um, who came and spoke um, in that series, th- that week he spoke about um, spaces, white spaces, black spaces, uh, and then, of course, the kind of space that the church ought to create and be, which supersedes all of that, which is more important than all of our particular cultural preferences. And he wasn't condemning our cultural preferences by any means. Uh, he was just saying that as the church, we should seek to, to engage a higher preference. And what struck me, because um, I, we went to lunch afterward and you were there, he, he, he talked about what that meant for their congregation. He had taken on pastoring a particular congregation that when he arrived there, it was not just a black church. It was a black church that intended to be a black church. And, and so in the process of changing that into a church that was, uh, you know, a, the, the kingdom community, the community in Christ was the focus, not just a particular culture. Uh, one of the things he said that we had to do was to stop celebrating Black History Month. And that, that was shocking to me in one sense, but it, it, it made sense because a, a person of another nationality walking in would not feel particularly comfortable in that celebration. They would be like, why are we talk, focused on them and not us? And of course, as, as, a, as a white believer, I live in a culture that, you know, it, that, that's white history year generally. I mean, th- th- there's a whole culture that surrounds who we are and the history of our nation. And so... Uh, just trying to think in terms of how do we uh, create a context that's welcoming to people 
that aren't of our culture. It's not that our culture is inherently evil. Uh, it's, it's that we want to supersede that culture for the kingdom of Christ, that the community of God's people is a different kind of community. And, and um, you know, one of the things you alluded to a moment ago is, is you know, there are things that go on in our nation, but they've influenced us. And part of why we have to talk about events in the nation, we're not trying to change the country. We're trying to call the church to action, to what the church is called to do. But the church lives, as you noted, in this country. And so we are influenced by the the political culture, by the societal ways of, of our culture. And some of those ways aren't inherently good. And so we need to try to identify those. And sometimes we don't even recognize what those are, but identify them and, 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 and work at removing those so that we can be more Christ-like. That's good. Tony, you had mentioned that in your experience, members of the Christian community who are in a predominantly white congregation, or in your experience, there wasn't much conversation about this. Is Gulf Coast Community Church the first church you've been a member of that was populated uh, predominantly by white members? No, second. The second one. So how long, and I, this is just curiosity to, to help me know more about your experience, how long now have you been attending uh, congregations where the majority, like supermajority, is made up of members who are white? Probably been here for 10, so 10 or 11, so probably more like 13 years, okay. I would say. Probably about so there was 13. one so before that for a couple well, yeah, of prior three to coming years. Here, right. Actually, prior to, prior to coming to Florida, Okay, I was. But, you know, let me say this. I think that... Um, when I speak of silence, I speak of, I'm referencing um, white evangelical leaders and what I hear them say. Okay. So versus me being in the church. So, and so I will, I'll give you a very personal experience. All right. So I attended Southwest Baptist University is where I went to school. Um, I encountered more direct racism at that school than I did any other place I'd ever been. Um, and, and here's the problem with it. I'd come to expect it because it's the life that I lived. But when, we, when I took that to the attention of our administration, they did nothing. So much so that actually what they told me was that the reason people were calling me nigger was because I was a Sunday school boy or Sunday school girl. That's all that kind of stuff. So they made it about some the things that are happening in our community, in our town, the things that people are saying to you. This is about your religious beliefs. This is about hmm. Christ and your suffering. So much so that my mother called the NAACP. So when I say Christians being silent on it, it's happening to a person that lives right wow. next door to you. Yeah. And you're doing nothing. And, you, and, and you're supposed to be protecting all students. This is not about Tony being black. This is one of your students right. that you should be protecting. And so when I say silence, I'm, there's a perfect example of silence. Silence. Like it couldn't possibly be a racial issue. How could it be that? I mean, that's the that's the perspective. So when I listen to, I would often so over the years, as I've listened to um, um, evangelical pastors in their podcasts and their sermon series and all those kinds of things, there's always a willingness to talk about abortion. There's always a willingness to talk about what's happening in someone else's country. There's always an, there's always a, a time to talk about what happened to the Jews. Right. But. I'm going, wow, what about right here? You mm. know, what about the Japanese right here? 
Okay, let's talk about what we did as a country. And so there was always a so there's this this deafening silence that essentially told me, I interpreted that to mean that my issue was not relevant, that my issue was was a non-issue, um, and that if I only did something different, or if someone in my family did something different, I would never have experienced this. And so that's what I mean when I say silence. So it's not the way I've been treated any place in the in like in the couple of churches. Certainly not here, because if that was the case, I wouldn't wouldn't have been here this long. Obviously, <laughs> right? I, mean, I, I wouldn't have been here this well, long. Might, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have been here, no, no, I wouldn't have been here this long. Um, but but I um, mm -hmm. but it's just been a, uh, that that kind of statements that are made, and you go, mm. wow, they're just so. Those are the times when I hear things that I go, there's so much more that that we could be talking about around this mm -hmm. issue that you're not saying. Okay. Uh, I, I think it is fair, though. Um, while I might not be defined as, as being silent entirely on the issue, because I've, I've had messages before, um, there is a certain silence. And this speaks to what Dave mentioned earlier. You know, why a series? And, and we, we work through books of the Bible. That is the, the, the general diet of the church. But uh, one thing I, I discovered in doing this series and focusing on it for four weeks is that you can preach, I really preach nothing different in this series than what I have uh, been preaching for the last 10 years at least, maybe maybe 15, uh, and, and, and yet what I did was apply it to a particular. And by applying it to a particular, I discovered that we can talk about things all day long, but until you apply them to a particular, that might be the very particular that's going to rub people the wrong way. You, it just goes in one ear and out the other, so to speak. And uh, so, though, I, in my mind, I wasn't silent because I was talking about justice. I was talking about all these things, but not until I applied them to this particular uh, issue did it become, um, as it were, a firebrand for some and, and, uh, or a sticking point. And so there is an element of silence. We, we, we have to speak of particular, I mean, uh, Bonhoeffer talked about that in, in with the Jewish situation in Germany. Uh, and and to your point earlier about our own history, um, you know, oftentimes people wonder, why did the United States wait so long to get involved in World War II? And of course, we, we know it took Pearl Harbor, uh, an attack on our country. And, and there are probably a variety of reasons, but one of the key reasons is that what was going on in Germany we, we had no moral ground to say that they were doing anything wrong because we were doing the exact same thing in our own country. You know, to say that they were uh, putting uh, uh, Jews in one part of town, to say that they were marking them and saying that they couldn't do certain things, that you couldn't shop at their business. Well, we were doing with segregation the exact same thing to another people group in our country. And so uh, to, to, for us to have gone in with some sort of moral high ground could not have been possible at that point. And of course, it wasn't until later when the gas chamber started, and, and of course, then you have the Pearl Harbor that that we had some uh, sort of different ground to go on. And 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 as you speak of the Japanese internment, I assume that's the part yes. you were referring yes, to. Um, you, even there, we did some of the things that one would really have to wonder how, if we couldn't see the uh, double standard involved there. One of the things you said that I that I uh, I've, I thought about. Um, earlier when you asked the question about the series impact and I, I thought of it, now it came back to me because of something Jerry just said, and that is that he, the, it was, you've been preaching this message about the, 
um, the kingdom mm-hmm. and the, the the laws and the rules of the kingdom and how it is, how Jesus has turned everything upside down, everything on its head. And um, when you tie, so therefore, when he started preaching this series, it, to me, it felt like an extension of that. It was like, okay, we've been talking about this in theory. Now we're going to apply it to reality. We're right. going to say, how does this, mm. lo- what does mm-hmm. this look like if you're actually living it every day with this particular issue? And, and it, and I understand why that would rub anyone the wrong way. I've had sermons. You've said things that have rubbed me the wrong way. They weren't racially about race, but there were other things. I've like, never had why, that experience. Why has he got to bring that up? <laughs> now he's right. just getting in my business, right. you know, but, right. but my point in that is that I did. I felt like what you were doing is you were you've been already delivering this series of messages and now you were applying that to an issue that is a tough issue. But you were applying it to something specific that we could then use to examine ourselves, which is what we're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So I wonder um, one thing that is an issue or, or kind of a topic we could address is, I think, to a certain degree, when you start talking about race or racism or injustice, I think people can uh, approach that topic in a couple of ways. I mean, I think for a lot of us, and including myself as a white person, I think we can tend to think, yeah, we're talking about things that happened in the past. We're talking about, uh, yes, there was slavery. Yes, uh, there were injustices and so forth. But we had the civil rights movement. We've had a number of important um, legislation and laws changed. I think for a lot of people, and you guys can correct me on this, a lot of white people like myself, we can tend to think about these as things in the past. These are things that happened a long time ago, um, but aren't really current realities. And if there's something to them, it's, I think, to Tony's perspective, you know, those are, those are some cultural things that, you know, the African-American community needs to kind of work through if they're going through some hard, hard things. But my perspective in talking to African-American believers is, yes, there was, there is history, and yes, there have been improvements, but these are still everyday realities. They're still racial issues. There are still injustices. There still is discrimination. There still is hardship connected. Any idea why there's well, well, and such think, a different, and, and am I, would you agree that people tend to have those? Well, uh, yeah, I, 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 I do agree myself. And, and um, I think, you know, we've all heard the expression, you can't legislate morality, which is kind of a, uh, you know, there's two sides to that. The one, on the one hand, that's exactly what you do legislate is morality. I mean, the fact that you're not allowed to kill your neighbor is, mor- is a moral issue. The fact that you're not allowed to steal, that is legislation of morality. The felony, you know, defined by how much you steal, well, these are legislations of morality. So all laws really, or at least most laws, in fact, do that. Um, but there's a truth to the statement that you can't legislate morality. The fact that you uh, legislate, you, thou shalt not kill, that you can't steal, that doesn't mean that you've changed the heart of the person. So their morality hasn't changed. You've just defined how they're going to be punished if they do it, uh, or that they will be punished in some fashion. And and the, the, those historical slavery was abolished, uh, segregation was done away with. But you can't legislate morality. Now you you did, and and it's a good thing you did because 
there were people that were willing to keep those systems in place forever, but the reality is, is that that had to be stopped, but it didn't change the human heart. And so to think that that did away with all the injustice that was going to be perpetrated is, would be an absurdity. Uh, and I know, Tony, your experience would probably speak to that. There's been, there has been great improvement, and I'm sure you're glad you're living no in this world, not the one from no doubt. 50 years ago. Right? No doubt. You know, there's been, oh no, there's been great improvement. And I think, I mean, I, I have said on, on many, many occasions that when I was growing up and um, someone would make the statement, you can be anything you want to be in America. We always followed that up either out loud if it was an all black group or to ourselves. Yeah, everything except president. You're never going to be president. Well, I've seen an African-American president in my lifetime. So to say that there's been no progress would be ludicrous. I mean, there's been the fact that we're even going to have the conversation would make it would say that um, at the same time, though, to your point, um, at the same time, um, it's not his, it's it. There's a connection between historical events and what ha there always has been. That right. There is you, you don't you may not look at the at your history and, and look for the connection, but there's reasons why you are where you are, right. and those things are connected. And I think you know even when you talk about uh, education, you know, I, I it's always it was I'm a product of what the solution was to to what was supposed to be separate but equal that became separate but unequal is that I then got bused. So now I'm being bused to an all white school where white parents take their kids out of the school. What does that say to me at 13? Nice. That when we arrive, you don't want your kids being educated next to us. That says that there's something wrong with me, that, there, that there's some problem with me. And that's the reason why this is, this is occurring. And so when I'm, so then when my friends and I play sports and all of those things and we're walking back home because we don't want to take the public bus that allows us to walk and talk and we're being called names by people as we walk through this suburban white neighborhood back to our to our home um, on one occasion actually being chased out of the neighborhood that's not history that's my life right. So, right. so you can mm -hmm. call it it's been a long time ago it has not been a long time ago <laughs> it's, it's when I was right. 13 years of age yeah. and I didn't ask to go to that white school someone made that decision but rather than improve the school that was right across the street from my house mm -hmm. so there's a junior high school right across the street from my house and I'm now getting up at the crack of dawn to stand on a bus stop in the winter time to go to a school with people who don't want me there. Mm. And so, so it's not when you, to your point, Dave, I think there is a tendency to think that it's past history, but there are still, it is not past history. And so when I look at it, I see a common, I see, I can go back in time and find common things in each generation that show you that it's always still happening. It may show up a little differently. So from an African-American perspective, not speaking for all African-Americans, but I do know a common experience is to see our history as connected, is to see our history as the things that have happened to our ancestors are a part of what's going on with us. And to carry that, literally carry that pain and that joy forward into the next generation. And so we, we, we see that. I mentioned Obama, but I would say the thing that was to me the most joyous part of Obama being elected was that I knew my kids would never have to say what I said. They would never say, I don't want to be, I, I, I can never be president. Right. I remember my son when he, he was younger back when, because you were talking about several years ago when Obama was running, he was actually, he wasn't even running for president yet. They were still deciding who was going to be the Democratic nominee. And, um, and we were sitting at the table and my son said, we were talking politics as we sometimes do. And so uh, my son said, well, I don't want, 
Obama to win and I don't want Hillary Clinton to win. I go, really? Interesting. Why is that? Because you're in a house full of Democrats. I'm sorry. <laughs> At the risk of offending you, you're in, a, you're in a house full of Democrats. What's that mean? No, seriously. He said that. I said, no, I didn't think that. I just said, so what do you, what do you, why do you say that? He said, because I want Monet, his sister, to be the first black female president. Mm-hmm. I want her to be that person. So in his mind, he couldn't conceive of that you couldn't be president at his young age. Right. So already new change was happening or has mm-hmm. happened, mm-hmm. that they're seeing something different than I saw and that my mom saw and that my grandparents saw. But to just dismiss it outright is um, missing so much. And it, it, it will, you know, you, I can understand your predicament and not excuse your behavior at the same time. So I can, I can, that's what empathy does. I can, I can feel for you and meet you at your place of pain, but still say you're ultimately going to be responsible for your actions because God has said you're ultimately going to be responsible for your actions. But he's also said, I'll visit the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So apparently he sees a connection between the actions of our ancestors and what you and I do on a day-to-day basis. But he, but I, Tony, will be held responsible for my actions. So I think that we can do we can do both. But I do. I think there's a tendency. I don't know why there's a tendency to do it. It's a safe place to be to think of it as all so long ago. And to your point, legislation fixed all of that. Um, It made it possible for the law needs. Those laws need to be passed so that we can say that it's wrong. Now, the heart of the people, the hearts of the people have to change in order to to make it a reality. Seems like sometimes we we don't understand the present realities of people that are different from us because we're so separated again it's, it's kind of a uh, a result or a fruit of the fact that and again not just in our city I mean throughout the country there's really uh, strong divides uh, racially among people but again just looking in St. Pete um, you know for a lot of uh, white people like myself you may not know the the daily reality of the folks that are African-American because you're not interacting with them. You're, you're in a different part of the city and, and, you know, there's plenty of people that say, yeah, I don't, I don't go to the South side unless I have to, you know? Uh, so when you're separate, when you're not close, when you're not sharing life in some way, you can tend to not, not really understand what are people going through. And, and to your to, to add to that, I think because that makes complete sense, Dave. And I would say that um, you, you can't. And I didn't grow up in South St. Pete, so I grew up some other place. But I certainly grew up in the African American community that would be considered the hood. And um, and um, I would say that um, I couldn't. I could not succeed if I didn't understand what was happening on the other side of town. So to your point. If you're on the north side of the county, you can go on with life and never have to know what happens on the south side. The people on the south side, as they interface with you, they have to know everything about you. Mm-hmm. They have to know everything about how to relate to you, how to connect with you, how to stay. That, that's a, that is a common reality, that I had to understand what was expected of me when I stepped across Rudisil Avenue, which would be our dividing line when I was a kid. I had to know what, what, what I needed to do differently on that side versus what I could do on this side. And so those, that's a, um, something that, 
that I would say, I, I, again, I can't speak for all African-Americans, but I can say that's a pretty common experience that yeah, you've got to understand that world that's happening out there or you're and that's because you're going to die. You just can't function without understanding it yeah, because let's it is the rule. Explore that a little bit because you mentioned that during the Wednesday evening family conversation. I think that that was um, perhaps a, a good starting revelatory you know, sort of unpacking your entire experience. When I asked that evening about, you know, how has racism impacted you, you, you kind of said, well, it's every, you know, it impacts me all the time and talked about what you're describing here, how um, for the most part or a common experience for, the, for members of the black community is the need to understand how to engage with the white community but um, the experience isn't the same from the white community toward the black community. So can you unpack some of that like you did on that Wednesday evening, follow up sort of what you, what you were just describing, the need to know how to socially navigate, um, we'll, we'll use the term uh, Daryl Williamson used, uh, white spaces. And, mm-hmm. and Yeah, there's a, so there's, a, um, there's an, uh, an absolute um, power structure that exists in our society. Um, it's, it's not one that is often talked about because America, it, it would be contrary to what we say America is. It, it be, so you, you, we're being taught one thing mm-hmm. in school, mm-hmm. hence that you can be whatever you want to be. Right. Except so president. there's the ideal. There, there's that's the presented. ideal. There's the ideal. And then there's mm-hmm. the reality. Mm-hmm. Love the ideal. Right. But there's a reality that there are men and women who are living this every day and we're all full of faults. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, some worse than others, but we are full of faults. So therefore it, it affects all of those things. So, um, so we had to be taught um, how to function in a white world. I, now, again, not speaking for every person, but for me, it started with, you know, my, watching my grandparents, um, who I spent a lot of time with, spent every summer with my grandparents. Um, and, um, and then also obviously watching my parents, watching my dad, watching my mom, um, I, I've often said, you know, I could always tell when someone from work called my father because his voice changed and became very proper sounding, what we would call proper, um, okay. would be um, um, very white sounding, actually, is All what right. it sounds like. And English it's not that he's, European. It's, yeah, yeah, yes, 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 yeah, <laughs> there you go. It's, it's not that he was speaking pro- proper English. He was always speaking good English. That's, but, it, but the, the tone, the, all of those things tended to change. I mean, so we had to learn how to navigate this world, um, the, the world in which we were going to be living in. And, you know, I'm thankful that I had parents who, you know, who not only taught um, me those things, but also helped me understand that if you don't understand this, you can't get into the world where you can then help lead change. So for my mom and my dad, it was about this is your opportunity. If you, if you can't even get in the door, you're never going to be able to affect change. So you have to understand these things to be able to get there to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And so it was less about just safety, which that was a part of it, but it was also about um, an opportunity to do something once you get there that they drilled in us that you have now a responsibility to those who didn't get there. And to try to help them get there and to try to make those who prevent them from getting there aware of how they're doing it, that that well, that's easier said than done. Um, that's easier said than done. Um, so we had to learn how that how society works. Um, and what's interesting is that you it was some of it was made easy because the history books teach us. 
So if, if you think about, well, I don't know about today's history books because I'm not in school, but, you know, we disappeared. I remember my daughter asking me, what happened between, what happened to black people mm-hmm. between, the, between, the emancip- I mean, between the Civil War and um, the Civil Rights Movement? Mm. Because when mm. I read my history book, we're gone. Right. Where did we go, Dad? <laughs> so, mm. so, but what was filled in there was lots of white American history. So you make it you not you personally, but it makes it the society. And understand when I, something I need to say because there's a I think there's a difference in speech, African American, white American. When we speak of you, we don't mean you personally. Right. <laughs> right. We mean this collective power structure, not so much you individual. And so sometimes I think I can say something and you'll think I'm talking about you specifically. I know you guys don't at the table, but um, I'm just saying sometimes I can say that and you can say, well, I'm not a racist. Well, I, w- I wasn't calling you a racist. I'm, I'm, so that being said, um, I hope that makes sense. But um, the, there were so many things that we learned that through history and through, the, through school, through education, all those things that taught us how to function in a predominantly white power structure. So can you give me a couple of examples Uh, of the types of things that either your, you said your parents had conversations with you about these things. Can you give me some examples of the types of things that as far as functioning in society, um, what, what are some of those things that they would instruct you in or what are some of those dynamics? What, what are the do's and don't do's examples of what they would explicitly tell you or the types of things that you learned along the way just by functioning and and observing and saying, ooh, I better watch out for this or not that, or I have to do this. Great question. So I'll give you a, a couple of quick practical ones. I mean, like that. So one is um, eye contact. So um, white Americans tend to, again, not every white American, <laughs> white Americans tend to have extended direct eye contact. African Americans tend to not. Um, we tend to talk and look away from one another. If you if you see two brothers come up, they they embrace, but they they even when they're standing on a corner talking, they're rarely looking at each other. They're usually looking away. When you well, say that, brothers, you bro- don't like mean African Americans, not my Christian brother and not my natural brother, but the actual black man. Sorry. <laughs> thank you for bringing that up. Yes, thank you for the clarification. <laughs> And, it, and again, it doesn't mean that we don't at all. I'm, mm-hmm. Again, not right. all people. Please, I keep qualifying. That. I'm going to stop qualifying. I don't, yeah, yeah. Don't. It, it is what it is. But, right. but I think that there's a tendency to, so, so one is extended eye contact. Um, one is smiling. Um, smiling even when we don't say hello. There's a, um, as you walk through a grocery store or any of that, there's a tendency to do this little smirk thing with, with your mouth. Mm-hmm. Tilt your head forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, those are things that when I don't do them, it could come across. I'm not saying that individual, but it could come across as it come across as rude. It could come across, and because of the images, so we have to keep in mind. One of the things we have to always be a we, me as an African American man. One of the things I have to always be aware of is the images of me that have been projected throughout all of history of our country. You, know, you can think about early movies that the Klan used. Right. To show the 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 beastie, beastly black man who's going to take your white woman and rape her and kill her. And then they would lynch him. So so if you think about historical, the way we've been perceived, the way we've been um, portrayed. And because we know because we know that 
images have an impact on our thinking. None of us are excluded from that. Mm-hmm. And it's right. me either. Me either. Right. Both about myself and about you. Right? And whether we like it or whether not. Whether we like it or not. And and, yeah. and, I, and, and, and and have certainly, and for me, certainly have been inaccurate in my assessment at times because I've been influenced by images that are not about everyone. So mm-hmm. so I know that they affect they affect us. Um, it's why advertising is such a powerful business. Isn't that right, Dave? Mm, that, that's true. <laughs> because the marketing man among us. That's yeah. right. So, but that being said, I have to be aware that I, I it is important for me to be aware that because of those images, I, I need to be, um, I could easily be mistaken for something that I'm not. Um, um, if you just think about recent history i mean if you just go back a year ago i mean there were the police were called on two african-american men at a starbucks in philadelphia because they hadn't ordered coffee yet because they looked suspicious they were waiting for a friend they were literally sitting at a table having a conversation Hmm. That's what I mean. I mean, that's when that you don't happens, think that's suspicious. Well, you know, what's, it's, it's interesting. And, and to give some historical context for just even that incident, there's a wonderful book that you should read if you ever have an opportunity called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Huh. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and I can give you personal experience of that from right. college, yeah. that when we were sitting together, we were told that we were being separate. We're separating ourselves from everyone else. Now, right. the majority of the people in this room are white. Right. Why are they not the ones who are separating themselves? Right. right. I'm the one who's separating myself. Uh, I see. I'm supposed to go integrate why with them. Why doesn't it work both ways? Why doesn't it work both ways? Right. The reason I'm with these other black kids is because I walked in a room and saw people who looked like me and tried to find and tried to connect with them first. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. But personally, that's what we were told that there was a group of us in the cafeteria that we weren't we were we weren't mixing in with everyone else as if we were up to something mm-hmm. because we so so that's what I mean when I say I have to know those things I have to know those things in order to be able to function I mean they affect my they what's what's most interesting is that it affects in addition to I think mentally and emotionally it affects us it affects me um, has affected me physically right so you know it's it, when I think about living the way that I've lived, it doesn't surprise me that my blood pressure is high. Now you can say, well, that's a common thing among African-Americans. Hmm. Is it a common thing among Africans or is it a common thing among African-Americans? I'm guessing it's African-American. Is there some connection to experience and high blood pressure? Maybe it's not just you ate too much greasy, too much fat food, fatty foods. Maybe there's other things that are happening in your life that are contributing to these health issues. Um, because one of the things that happened on the other side of the Wednesday night conversation is, uh, let me preface this by saying, I'm one of those people who rarely loses sleep. I mean, I don't sleep as long as I used to when I was younger, sure. so there's that. But the day my mother told me she, that she had been diagnosed with breast cancer, I slept fine that night. The next morning, I'm worried and I'm with her. But mm-hmm. but it, for whatever reason, God has equipped me to be able to put that stuff on a shelf and just go to sleep. And I'm only get six hours, but but I can now wake up alert enough to deal with whatever the crisis right. is. So against that backdrop, I didn't sleep the next one after that that Wednesday night. Um, I, maybe an hour, maybe two hours. Um, I couldn't turn the conversation off. I couldn't turn. I kept, I kept hearing my voice. I kept seeing the faces of the people. Um, it was as if. I think my wife described it as I talked with her, talked through it with her. She said it's, it's, well, I, let me say what I, what I said to her was, I said, it's as if all of these things have been neatly packed away on a shelf in my head 
and Wednesday night, I unpacked all of it. Hmm. Um, it, it. I said things I hadn't thought of in years. I just unpacked it all. And she said, and now it's as if your mind is cluttered with all that stuff and you don't know what to do with it. And that was exactly what it felt like. Um, that it was just, I was, it was, my brain was just cluttered. And it was the next night I got a little bit more sleep, but then that next morning was when I was weeping because then I realized that in keeping this secret, not knowing it was a secret, in keeping this secret from you, I was also keeping it from me. Mm-mm. And suddenly it wasn't a secret to me anymore. And now I'm crying for, the, for myself um, and for the pain that I've, that I've hidden from the world that I didn't know I was hiding. It wasn't a conscious effort. It was, well, maybe some of it was conscious, but I think at the end of the day it was just survival. Um, and I realized, wow, you've been carrying this a, a long, for a long time, so... I, I suspect by what you're describing, you didn't anticipate that Wednesday evening when you came to say all of that. Oh, my gosh, no. Right. <laughs> no, right. no, no, no. I didn't know what the questions were going to be, but I definitely did not. I said so much more than, than I intended to say. Um, but for whatever reason, the Lord wanted more said. Maybe it was for you. Maybe it was for me. Or, or maybe both. it was both. Right. Maybe right. it was right. both. But, um, but, but I, no, I didn't come with any plan at all. Um, just, to, just wanted to speak from my heart. So... Well, I'm I'm glad you did. There were certain some th- certainly aspects of it that I was. It, it's one of those uncomfortable topics are un- called uncomfortable topics for a reason. And so, Agreed. when someone gets honest about their feelings uh, or and or their experiences, it can be uncomfortable to to watch and for people you love like there are just times where members of my family they start getting honest about the ways I'm acting or speaking and hey it's tough to sit and listen through but it doesn't mean it's not true it doesn't mean it's not valuable to hear and maybe down the road I come back and ask some clarifying questions um, to see what's happening but in the moment it's rarely good to to have the reflex of let me counter accuse or let me dismiss or anything like that instead of taking the time to hear it out and and giving that person the opportunity the the dignity of being able to express themselves is as long as they're doing it you know as justly as they know how if their intentions are just to um make themselves known not necessarily to hurt or harm and and then come back later instead of the first reaction to be either recrimination or self-justification or anything like that. And so there were moments as you were speaking that Wednesday evening where my reflex was to, oh boy, and 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 then I would coach myself right out of that as I was sitting in the panel <laughs> and 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 then say no, if if you're going to ask someone to share their experiences, you're going to hear their experiences. And as a follower of Jesus, it's incumbent upon me not necessarily to agree with everything or to say that all of that is true, but you know what? That's his experience. And, and so it would be unjust, unkind, uncharitable of me, at least not to hear him out and and say, okay. And at one point, I, I recall as you were talking about the the need to know the rules of white culture and that on the other hand, there's not a whole lot of impetus for most white Americans and even Christians who are white to 
to learn what it's like in the black community to understand that culture. And, and so I remember sitting there thinking as you were becoming impassioned and animated about it and me having my normal response, which is, I'm becoming uncomfortable because he's becoming <laughs> impassioned and animated. And then, and, then, and, then, and then saying to myself, and that's what he just told me was one of the boundaries that he knows he's crossing. He knows he's crossing my cultural boundary about that. And he's just told me that. And here I am inside myself <laughs> feeling him transgress this cultural boundary. <laughs> and I'm having to say to myself, you're... This is a perfect example internally. So in the moment, I, I appreciated that even if that wasn't what you expected or, or, or that you had, didn't necessarily have the intention to go that direction, that when you did, for me at least, it presented a case study in exactly wow. the point you were making. Wow. Mm -hmm. Indeed it did. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, and, and That's good. As, as I think through you know, some of what we were talking about, and, and this is a hot button topic this is one of those buttons you push it and i'm going to say a word here in a minute and when i say it there are going to be people that react and i'm going to appeal to you not to react because i'm I, I people talk about things and we have ideas loaded in them and that word that i'm thinking of right now is white privilege and for years up and really until very recently I, I thought that white privilege meant that i had more stuff and so you bring up white privilege and and many of the white people i know myself at one point in history as well would start giving you a litany of reasons why there's no such thing as white privilege and all of them indicating that there are poor white people, yeah. you know, my family history was poor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so if, if there's any sense of white privilege, uh, what do you, that's was in history that doesn't exist now, but that's not what people, at least certainly not what scholars mean when they talk about white privilege and, and, and I, I, white privilege, you actually described it earlier, didn't use the word, but it's at, at its core, and I, there's obviously evidently could be more to it than this, but at its core, it's this sense that, that I don't have to understand your world. Yes. I don't have to know you yes. in order to make it, in order to survive, in order to succeed, in order to do anything in my life. And I don't consciously go about life not knowing you. Right. I don't, and, and by, again, same qualification you made when I say you right now, I'm speaking to Tony. You can't see me here, but I'm looking right at Tony <laughs> as a, a represented an African-American person. So in our culture and, and me as one person, I, I don't have to know you to succeed or make it. You, on the other hand, do have to. You don't, yes. you don't wake up in the morning without sort of knowing that as you go into the world, you have to understand what's going on around you. Um, and, and, and it, it could be illustrated in a, in, in a number of ways. And, um, you know, if, if you want to go all the way back to the slave days, it would be illustrated in the fact that if the, uh, slave did not know what was going on in the mind of the master at any given moment, the risk was that they would be beaten or possibly beaten to death. Um, and, and, but the master never had to really care a lick about what was going on in the mind of the slave, even if they're selling their children, even if they're separating husband and wife, even it, it, brother and sister, it didn't matter to them because it, that, that didn't, had nothing to do with their survival. Now that's obviously an extreme, sure. but the reality is, and you noted it well earlier, that, that I don't have to know. And, and yet as an African-American, you, you better know. Now, of course, there are some that say they don't care to know and they're not going to live that way. And uh, that has its own set of, of um, uh, burdens and, and, and so forth. Um, and it's, so it's not an evil thing that a white person does. 
Right. They do it unconsciously. Right. They don't have to. And, 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 and I wish you didn't have to think that way, but to survive in the culture that you and I both live in, the reality is you've had to. Yes. And, and to make it. Yes. And um, so uh, that, that's just part of and, and And I think it's helpful if people would just pause and understand that. Um, and one can deny that. I, I, I suppose one can deny that exists, but I, I, yeah, I don't know what evidence they would bring to support that denial. Right. Uh, certainly not the history of this country. Yeah. You know, I would add something, if I could, something, something you said, Todd, just because I'm going to assume that a good number of people who listen to the podcast are members of our church. There could be others, right. obviously, sure. but there'll be members of our church. And I just would say to anyone who was here on Wednesday evening, if there's anything I said that you would like to explore more you were offended by you'd like to you should you actually should come and have a conversation with me i mean you actually should say hey i just want to check in with you i just right. want to say i mean I, I appreciate what you did or whatever but man you said this and because it does give an opportunity for me to further explain or maybe i said it in a way that i shouldn't have said it i mean i'm right. i'm also okay. human right yeah. so um so there's a possibility and I, I tried to make it clear from the beginning and throughout my intent here First of all, I'm here because I've been asked to say that to talk. But secondly, the last thing I want to do is cause you any pain. That is that's not mm. my intent um, is to is to make you feel bad about you or bad about being white or because that's not what this is about at all. Right. At all. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sermon Extras. This just begins our series on race and reconciliation. So be sure to look out for future episodes as we continue the conversation.